going ice skating. So Colossians chapter three. <clears throat> we all there? Give me a thumbs up when you make it. We have pens and papers coming around. So we are taking a small break from the book of Genesis. We made it through the kind of first part of Genesis, all of the theology of creation and the fall of humanity. And we kind of saw that God made something really good and spiraled down into um, just chaos and disorder because of sin. Um, But we're going to take a break from that the rest of this calendar year. And we're going to talk about this really important topic. And it's called Union with Christ. Now, here's the thing. I'm not much for um, not preaching through a passage. I usually like to kind of, it's my safety net to kind of stick through what one passage is teaching. But the idea of union with Christ, can I be honest with you, is probably the most essential and most important doctrine of being a Christian in general. Matter of fact, um, this little phrase that we'll be looking at tonight and the next two weeks after, this phrase, in Christ, is used 164 times by the Apostle Paul. And what I really want to show us by looking at union with Christ is that um, I think this doctrine, this idea of union with Christ is probably, listen, this is an important statement, maybe the most spiritually forming and helpful thing to our walks with Christ than anything else. Um, and so what i like to do is spend three weeks talking about what is union with Christ, and so that's what we'll do today, just talk about what is it? What do you mean by this union in Christ? Um, how do we get this union with Christ, and why does it matter? So um, we'll be kind of hopping around the Bible a little bit tonight, so I encourage you to keep it open. But before we start, let me pray for us, because the Lord knows that I need the help and you need the help. So would you bow your heads with me, and we'll pray before we dive in. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask now as we come before your word and as we just talk about this really important topic of what does it mean to have union with Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would guard um, any false words. God, I pray that you guard us from um, being apathetic about this topic. And, And Lord, I just would ask that by your spirit, you would just encourage our hearts to help us to see the glory and the wonder of what it means to be a Christian. And so, Lord, I just pray for these students tonight, Lord, that would you give them hearts of faith? Would you give them a fresh perspective of seeing um, just the glory of what it means to have their sins forgiven? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this book by, um, I think his name is Rankin, um, Wilkin, he, uh, talking about union with Christ, he talks about this idea of how we need to reclaim our imaginations. I, I would say, unfortunately, when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to us thinking about our salvation, thinking about what it means to be a Christian, I would say that our imaginations have been lost. That we have a hard time thinking creatively. We have a hard time thinking in new categories about what does it mean to be a Christian. Do you ever, um, maybe in school, you kind of get in a stuck thought on a certain topic and then it takes maybe dialogue with other people, or are you reading new material, or are you having different experiences to kind of get you out of this certain thinking? Well, I think the same thing happens sometimes in the Christian life. We use phrases like Jesus in your heart, 
God is always with you. Uh, God won't give you more than you can handle. And, and we kind of sometimes, we lump onto these cl- cliche statements that eventually um, have a hard time even having any meaning for us. And so in the beginning of this book, this guy talks about how we need to reclaim our imaginations, and he gives us this story. He says, most of us at one time have wondered if we were switched at birth. Are those really my parents? Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, like I literally had like daydreams about this. Like This truly, I mean, I know he kind of looks like me, my brothers, but this can't be my family. I guarantee you that I was like kidnapped at birth or something, and my real parents are out there. Did anyone of you ever struggle with that? No, never? So I got a few hands. But just imagine, just, if you've never thought that way, just, just imagine for a second, your parents are mean, they're critical, that no matter what you do, you've always been a disappointment to them and they to you. But then one day, you sneak into your dusty attic and you find a trunk and you quietly pick the lock of, and open this trunk and you discover papers that prove you had, in fact, been abducted as a baby. These aren't your parents after all. Why, in fact, they're criminals. You discover that your real mom was a painter in South France and that your real dad was a Nobel Prize-winning scientist and a professional baseball player. And you say to yourself, of course, this explains everything. I'm extraordinary. I, I knew it all along. You also read that they are fabulously wealthy and have a lavish inheritance waiting for you. It's a fantastic story, but you get it. Imagine, imagine if you actually had that encounter, if you read these things. When, when you would walk out of the basement or the attic, wherever you are, your eyes would be completely open to a new reality of life. Such a discovery would cause you to reinterpret everything about your life, where you came from, your true identity, your capacities and capabilities, the resources available to you, your future and your destiny. After that day, your life would never be the same. You would come down from the attic with new eyes for everything and everyone. Your whole entire life would feel new, changed, and invigorated. But here's the thing. It had always been true. It was the truth underlying your life before you discovered it. It was rooted in history, and you had the DNA to prove it. It was true, even though it was hidden from your sight. But it didn't actually change you and how you saw reality until your eyes were open to it. In the very same but different way, So it is with our union with Christ. Our union with Christ tells all of us, tells you a new story of who you are. If you are in Christ, you too have been given a new identity. God has called you into a new life. He has rooted you in a history that predates you. And what is that history? The history of Jesus's life death and resurrection. You discover now who you are in Christ and you are given the DNA to prove this new life. The Holy Spirit. You once were lost, but now you are found in him. 
You see, the reason why I want to spend time on this topic of union with Christ is, is, is for a lot of reasons, but I think for the primary reason of, let me just ask you guys a question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have had a hard time connecting God to your everyday life? You know, as Christians, we, we know so many things. We know a lot about God. Every single week we talk about Jesus. We talk about the gospel. I mean, far be it from us that we, we don't lift up the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. But let me just ask the simple question. Even though I think most of us in this room could talk about the gospel, do you ever find this disconnect of how you feel towards God? Or just on your everyday life, that, that you know you not ought to sin, but yet you continue to do it. Or you know that you shouldn't feel kind of lazy and apathetic towards God, but yet so it is every single day. You never have any desire to read your Bible, to pray, or to talk about Jesus. In essence, there's a gap in how you feel and how you live to what you believe. And for all of those reasons, I think it's so important for us to realize and to recognize with new eyes the story we are in Christ. And that is what union with Christ is all about. That Here's the thing, guys, listen. I know sometimes in church, in a youth group, we talk about abstract ideas, that it's not just all very practical, that, that the Christian life isn't just about do this and don't do that, as hard as that is for people to understand. And we say it all the time, yet I come across it everywhere, that, that we sometimes think that, that Christianity, the Christian faith, is behaviorism or moralism, that I shouldn't do these things and I should do, should do those things. Let me just tell you something. This idea of union with Christ is not an abstract idea. It is rather a very powerful reality. A reality that we can't see, a reality at times that we don't always feel, but a powerful reality nonetheless. And so, as Christians, with this gap, with honestly, guys, sometimes I think we just forget why God saved us in the first place. Why did God in love come into humanity, live a perfect life, and die on the cross? And union with Christ tells us this, that God has saved you for communion, for relationship, and intimacy with God himself. So there's three things of what I want to do tonight of talking about what is union with Christ, right? So we keep saying this phrase, union with Christ, union with Christ, and the reasons why we need to talk about it. But what is it? Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is in your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The first thing of what it means to have a union with Christ, of what is it, is simply this, that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. You want to know something? The Apostle Paul, of all the letters we have from the Apostle Paul, do you want to know? He never once actually describes someone as a Christian. 
Not, not one time does the Apostle Paul ever label the term Christian. But do you want to know the primary way of how he describes someone who follows Jesus? With this little preposition, in. It says you are in Christ. That, that, that's the first and most basic issue of what does it mean to have a union with Jesus, a union with Christ, that you are in him, right? And so when we talk about this idea that you are in Christ, kind of what the issue at hand is that we kind of believe as Christians in what we call corporate identity, that there is someone who represents you, that if you are in someone, that person represents your standing. So there's a good story in the Bible that kind of illustrates what I'm talking about this idea of corporate identity. And it's a story that I think a lot of people know. It's the story of David and who? David and Goliath. Now, great story in the Bible. And now, what it's, if you don't know the story of David and Goliath, I'll, I'll briefly explain it. There's a little shepherd boy. His name is David. He will one day become king of Israel. And his dad says, hey, go give your brothers on, on the battle line, they're fighting the Philistines, some food. And so David, little shepherd boy, you know, he's probably got a stick and his bandana wrapped with food and, you know, he's walking down the road and, and he finds his brothers. And what he sees is that on one side of the hill, there's the Israelite camp and the other side, there are the Philistines. And David's like, yo, what's up? Why aren't you guys fighting? And that's when someone tells him, well, they kind of want to have a one-on-one duel. So the Philistines, they're going to put up their best guy, Goliath. And he was a huge guy, really tall, strong. And the Israelites, they're going to put up their one best guy. And they're going to fight. And whoever wins, that nation wins. Now, here's the thing. Everyone is scared of Goliath on the Israel side. And David, this little teenager, is like, are you kidding me? This uncircumcised Philistine is defiling the name of the Lord our God? Let me have him. And they're like, they're like, whoa, dude, come on. And David goes to the Saul's like, I'll do it, right? I'll do it. And so they first they put all this armor on David, and David's like, no, screw this, this is too heavy, right? And what does David do? He gets his little sling, and he grabs five stones. And we'll just say he just grabbed five stones because he grabbed five stones. There's nothing symbolic about grabbing five stones, okay? As people would like to tell you, there's just probably not, right? He grabs five stones, and David goes up, to the Philistine, Goliath's like, oh, a little boy and all this stuff. And David just like, throws the rock at his head. He falls down. David walks up, grabs the dude's sword, cuts off his head. And guess what? The battle's done. You see, but listen, David, in a way, was taking care of all of Israel. In Israel, they all were in David. David made that accomplishment for everyone in Israel, which is why when David got back to the people were singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David has tens of thousands. There's a sense in which one person identified for the whole people. And it's the same way when we talk about Christ, that when you are in Christ, Jesus is kind of being the person who's identifying for everyone, that his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension counts now for everyone who is in him. So that's why this is a really unique passage where Paul says in Colossians 3, 
3, he says, for you have died and your life is what? What is that word saying? Colossians 3, 3. For you have died and your life is hidden. Your life is hidden in Christ. You see, when we are in Christ, every part of Jesus' life, not only his death has significance for us, we share in his life, we share in his death and resurrection, even in his ascension. And so this idea of being hidden in Christ means this, guys, listen. That your primary story, and not just an idea, your reality your story becomes a different story. It becomes the story of Jesus. See, this author of this book that I quoted earlier, he's a pastor in L.A., and he said he had a woman at his church who worked at Disneyland, and she was actually the character Mickey Mouse. Kind of funny, right? It would be interesting to actually know who Mickey Mouse was, but um, this woman who played Mickey Mouse at Disneyland, she struggled with identity issues her entire life. As a young child... She was always kind of told that she wasn't good enough, that she wasn't pretty enough. And so her entire adult life, she struggled feeling that she was valuable, that she had worth, and that she was important. But here's the thing. When she would put on the Mickey Mouse costume, she said for days and hours afterwards, she would feel loved and accepted and valued. You know why? Because for hours, every single day, people would run up to her and be excited to see her and give her hugs, right? Even though she was in a different costume, not herself, she actually said, is this what it feels like when everyone runs to God so joyfully and with excitement? You see, you could say that when she was hidden in the the righteousness or the, the person of Mickey Mouse, she felt loved and accepted. But that's just fictitious. Mickey Mouse is a real person. But, but when we say you are in Christ, here is what we are saying. That when you are hidden in Christ, you are completely safe. You are hidden in him. He represents you before the Father. He covers your sin. He covers your shame and your weaknesses. And so being in Christ and being hidden in him is to discover your true God-given identity. That you're alive in Jesus. That you're moving with him through this world. And guys, listen, Jesus literally, in this reality, clothes you in all of his benefits and blessings. This is not preacher hyperbole to say, but there is nothing greater than anything in the world to be in Christ. So what does this mean to be in Christ? It means this, that you don't have to prove yourself anymore to anyone. The gospel means that you don't have to try to do things to get acceptance anywhere else. Every single one of us at times, we hide, we, we try to put ourselves in things that will make us noticed by people. We want to be accepted by our friends. We want our parents to think highly of us. We want our boyfriend or our girlfriend or or the person we kind of like to think highly of us. We are constantly looking for things to be inside of that make us feel better 
I was, I was talking to even a woman today at church, and she said that um, she made this, this vow to God once that she would not wear makeup or color her hair. And she's like, man, it's just really hard sometimes to not go back on that. And she literally said, because for years, I was told that I wasn't smart, and I hid behind how I looked to people. I would hide behind the makeup and my hair. But God is calling me to rest in him. She was literally living out this idea that I am in Christ. And that's all I need. I don't have to prove myself. If I am in Christ, I have nothing to prove to anyone because God right now sees me exactly how he sees Jesus. You guys see, here's what's so wonderful about the gospel. Here's so wonderful about what I'm saying right now. That literally when you are in Christ, by faith, everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you. See Colossians 3.1 right there. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. What a statement. He says, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, that, that, that phrase in scripture, the right hand of God, is just a term, it's a title for the highest place of authority, honor, and glory. It is the most significant place of, of, of God's delight, of God's care, of God's concern, of God's glory. And then that's where Jesus is. But if you are in Christ, that is also true of you. That right now you are in right in the center of God's glory and care and concern. Being in Christ means that we don't hide behind our looks or our accomplishments or how smart we are, our our scores on the ACTs or the SATs. We don't hide behind money. What's sobering truth and good news to hear that when God looks at you, he sees that you are hidden in Christ. Can I just say something, guys? This is what freedom is. This is confidence. This is good, good news. That by faith, when you are in Christ, completely accepted, known, and loved. So what is union with Christ? It is simply that we are in Christ. That's one, that we are in Christ. But two, it's this, that Christ is in you. Second thing of what union Christ is, it is that Christ is in you. Same book of the Bible, Colossians chapter one. Look down with me, Colossians chapter one. Verse 27, maybe one of the most incredible verses in the, in the entire Bible. Paul says this, Colossians 1.27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this mystery? Namely, the gospel. And what is this mystery? Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Union with Christ means that one, we are in Christ, but two, it means that Christ is in us. Now, this is a very hard reality to try to teach little kids, right? I have little kids right now, and my wife and I are doing our best to catechize them, to teach them the faith, to model to them what it means to be lovers of Jesus. And so I I sometimes will catch these little conversations that my daughters have with each other about Jesus, right? And so they say, like, 
Well, Jesus is in my heart. Jesus is also in um, Planko, their little stuffed animal. Jesus is also in the table. Jesus is in, you know, the window. And then they start doing all these things about what Jesus is in and all this stuff, right? And I, I think they're, they're kind of playing into this idea of, like, what does it mean to say that Jesus is in someone? Right? What does it even mean to say that Jesus is alive? Right? We sing about that, like, praise the Lord, he is alive. On Easter Sunday, we talk about Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive. Now, a lot of religions talk about how their founder is alive, right? So Buddha, they say that Buddha is alive through his teachings. But the more we talk about Buddha and the more we, we live out his teachings, the more he's kind of alive in this world. You, you kind of understand, but, but, but let me just say something. With the Christian faith, when we say that Jesus is alive, we actually mean that his heart is beating, that he has flesh, that he is right now in heaven forever taking on flesh, that Jesus, the person of Jesus, is radically affecting the life of his followers for those who are in him far more than just an example. Like the, 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 sometimes like when you talk about liberal Christianity, it is just boiled down to Jesus left us a good social life to live. That Jesus didn't really bodily raised from the grave, that Jesus was just a good teacher who taught us a lot of things and kind of fought against all the systems of injustice of Rome and what have you. But when we say that Christ is in you, we realize that that's kind of a hard thing to talk about. What does that really look like? You see, whenever you start to try to talk about a mystery, you're in danger of actually misinterpreting it. Like we, I just have to say, like this idea of union with Christ, it is a mystery. That the God of the entire universe who made everything, we talked about this in Genesis 1, right? The God who made the dust, and then out of the dust, he formed man. And this man, he came and dwelt in, and he had flesh, and he died for the dust of the earth. And so this same God who made all the stars on day four of creation, is the God who lives in us. This is why Paul says in Colossians 1.27, the mystery hidden for ages. Guys, can I tell you something? The mystery at the center of the cosmos is the gospel. Okay, listen, like, this is such a profound thing that one... Little kids can understand it, but two, it is so incredibly mysterious and deep, and dare I even say mystical, and we'll talk about that word in a minute, that it is like the Marianas Trench, so deep that we'll never fully comprehend it. But do me a favor, we'll try. Turn to, in your Bible to John chapter 13, the Gospel of John chapter 13. We're going to look a little bit around John 13, 14. We're going to talk about what, what does it really mean that Jesus is in us. Now, imagine for a second, Jesus condescends into humanity. He has, you know, an appearance just like anyone else of his day and age. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we're told in Scripture that he probably wasn't turning any heads. You know what I mean by that? He wasn't super handsome. He's just an ordinary guy, right? And... 
He probably at times would smell funny when he worked too hard. You know, he probably had stomach issues when he ate something bad. And he walked around with his disciples. But do you want to know something like the, the biggest struggle I have is the ability to not be in two places at once. I tell you right now, my life would be so much better if I could be here right now talking to you about Christ, but also be home with my wife putting my kids to bed, right? I wish I could be in two places at once, but I am living in this space and time, and I can only be one place at once. But look what Jesus says in John 13, starting in verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus, he's talking to his disciples. This is the night where he's betrayed, and he's about to go to the cross. And he says, hey, guys, listen. You don't understand this right now, but where I'm going, you can't come with me. You got to stay here. Right? And so his disciples begin to say, like, what do you mean we can't come with you? We, we want to come with you. And, the, and they, the disciples get into all these questions about, hey, show us the Father. And Jesus is like, yo, bro, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and he's trying to teach them. But then later, look down at verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Well, why do you think Jesus would, would tell his disciples that? Because listen, for two and a half years, those 12 disciples are now probably 11 because Judas is a loser. Um, they have followed Jesus around. They, they were up close and personal. They, they heard Jesus snore. They could touch him. They can play rock, paper, scissors. They were on a boat with him. They saw him teach. They saw him do miracles. But now Jesus is saying, hey, I'm leaving you. And where I go, you can't come. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, you're going to take over Rome. You're the Messiah. You, you, what do you mean you're leaving? Jesus says, hey, let not your hearts be troubled. He's trying to comfort them because like, no, don't, don't leave us. Don't leave us. And so what does Jesus say? He picks up here in, in chapter 14, verse 18. He says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. See, again, Jesus is comforting them. Listen, listen, listen. I'm leaving, yes. But it's not like a father who leaves a house for their kids just to be orphans. Look at verse 16 of chapter 14. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you. And will be what? In you. See, Jesus says, listen, guys, it's actually far better for you if I leave. Because listen, right now, I can only be in one place at once. Jesus knew that. He, he, Jesus couldn't be everywhere at one time when he was on earth. So Jesus says he's going to send a helper Other times, people translate this as the counselor, the advocate, the friend. But we refer to as what? The Holy Spirit. You see, during Jesus' life, his presence was localized to his physical body. But what's so, guys, listen, what's so amazing about being united to Christ 
is that you have the spirit of Christ within you. Have you ever thought like, man, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus just came to school with me? Like, I would be a great Christian if Jesus just came, he walked with me, maybe before I went to class at chemistry final, he would, he would pray over me. Like, can you just imagine what your life would be like tomorrow if Jesus, like, just showed up and was like, I'm hanging out with you all day today. Like, you think, like, wouldn't that just be the coolest thing ever? Sure. But let me tell you something. What is far more meaningful, far more deep, far more significant, far more helpful to you is not that Jesus would just show up next to you. Because in a far better way, listen, Christ is in you. You know the closeness that a mom would feel to her baby when the baby kicks inside the womb? Doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the closeness we have with Christ, with our union with him. It is a deep and mystical union. This, guys, listen, this is why we have the power to be transformed. Sinclair Ferguson, theologian and pastor, he says this, having the spirit in you is the equivalent, indeed the very mode, listen, of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling us so that we are united to him as he is united to the Father. What is it, guys, what, what is it, what am I getting at? Why is it so important that we talk about that Christ is in you? Because here's the thing. If Christ is dwelling in us by his spirit, it is a guarantee that we can and that we will change. You see, I, I talked about this earlier, we have these gaps we know a lot about our faith, yet when it seems Monday through Saturday, our lives are never changed. How many of us, we have sins that no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we struggle, we just continue to give in to them? How many of us, when it seems that we look around at other people talking about Jesus, or when they sing, they're really passionate, but it just kind of feels like I'm faking? You see, but, but, but to be in Christ by faith is to know for certain that my reality, even though I don't feel it, even though sometimes it seems distant, I have Christ living in me, which means that no matter what, I'm going to be changed. Think for a second. There's a, there's a song we sang, uh, Jesus on my cross I've taken. You guys remember that song we sang it a month or two ago? And one of the lines it says in there, it says, think what spirit dwells within me. Do you realize that the Jesus who overcame Satan in the wilderness is now in you? The Jesus who had compassion on the crowds is now in you? The Jesus who never once gave into lust or impurity is now in you? The Jesus who, no matter what hardship he went through, was able to trust in God and to fight off anxiety and depression is in you? This Jesus has power, and he is in you. And guys, let me tell you something. There are days, even me as your youth pastor, I wake up, and I do not feel close to God. There are times where I come Sunday morning, and I have to fight myself to sing. But see, here's the thing. Our faith is like an invisible sea 
That sometimes you have low tides and sometimes you have high tides. You know, it seems like when I go to a conference or I hear a good sermon, maybe I go to winter camp, I feel like my faith is at high tide. But man, sometimes when I just go through the constant grind of life, week in, week out, of doing all the responsibilities, it just feels like my faith is weak. And I'm at low tide. But let me tell you something. Here's the best news of why Christ is in you. Because it is not the quality or the degree of your faith that matters. As much as being united to the object of our faith, Jesus the perfect Christ. It is Jesus who saves us, not our imperfect faith, not our imperfect obedience. So right now, I'll just tell you, like, if you struggle to, with this gap that you don't always feel like you are a good Christian, let me tell you, the job of the helper, of the advocate, of the Holy Spirit is to take your eyes off of you and to put it on Jesus, who always had perfect faith, who is our perfect righteousness, who is... In fact, our salvation. See, the reason why union with Christ is so important, when we talk about salvation, we talk about grace. We talk about forgiveness of sins. We talk about what Christ has done on the cross. But we talk about it in the terms that it's something. And let me tell you something. It is not something that saves you. It is someone. All of justification, sanctification, adoption, redemption, all these biblical words describing what it means to be a Christian mean absolutely nothing if you are not in Christ, united to him through faith. See, we do not receive salvation or any of its benefits or any of the spiritual blessings until we are in Christ. Let's do a quick vote. Who thinks Spider-Man is better than Batman? Well, we'll just raise your hand if you think Spider-Man is better. Let's raise your hand if you think Batman is better. If you rose Batman, I apologize, but you chose poorly. Here's why. Here's why. Batman, on the inside, has no actual abilities. He just has outward things that make him awesome. He has a lot of money. He has gadgets. Hand down. But here's the thing when it, when it comes to Spider-Man. He actually was bitten by a radioactive spider that changed his DNA And so now pulsating through his blood and his veins is actual abilities to change. Guys, listen, when it comes to the Christian life, it is not just that we try harder, we do things on the outwards. Literally, when we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we have the ability now to live transformed lives because the Spirit is in us. So although our faith rises and falls, here's what we must never do. And this is an important lesson, I think, for high schoolers to hear. Never base your Christian life off your experience. Your experience will go up and down. Listen, your faith is grounded not in experiences, not in feelings, not in intuition, but it's based off a person Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit turns our eyes away from ourselves and onto Christ. Faith, trust, dependence, it fixes your eyes on Christ, never on yourself and what you're not doing. Faith says, no, I look to the person who did everything I couldn't do. 
So what is union with Christ? One, it is that we are in Christ. Two, that Christ is in us. And thirdly, it is this. It is a mystical and spiritual union. Now guys, I'll, I'll be brief on this point. But everything I'm saying here, let me just tell you, it's a mystery. I mean, I, I still to this day don't know really how to explain to a five-year-old the reality hidden in the middle of the universe that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And that's the word mystical. Let me tell you something. That's a really, it could be a really dangerous word, especially in the new age spirituality that we live in. And if by mystical you mean that somehow you just kind of become God and we're all gods in ourselves and everything is kind of the spiritualness, um, that's garbage and throw it away. But if, 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 but if mystical, we actually mean the word hidden, that these truths, that, that, that literally what Paul says there in Colossians 1, that this mystery hidden for centuries, for generations, right? The idea is that we are going to grow into this reality. That, that literally to be a Christian mystic is actually this idea that we grow into this reality all of our lives. Go back to the story we read about, right? You think that your life is poor and miserable. You hate your parents. You hate, they hate you, right? Your life is poor. But deep down, there was a better and true reality that once your eyes were awakened to, your life is going to change. And so now, because you know this new reality, your life is going to be different. And so it is with us as Christians. We hear about this new reality, but it takes time for us to grow in this new union. So let me give you two examples of what I mean by this. One, um, I got married on July 10th, two thousand. And ten, praise God for marriage. It was awesome. Blake and Kimberly are getting married. Hey, right now, let me tell you something. When I got married, July eleventh, it was um, we signed the marriage certificate. We got married in front of God. We said vows to each other. We said all the I do's. We were married. It was a complete reality, right? Um, no one could take it away. But here's the thing. We've now been married for eight years. And I would just say, my view of marriage, my view of myself, my view of my wife, has changed dramatically. Dramatically. Hopefully, everyone can say that marriage is like fine wine. That it just gets better with time. You see... Right now, eight years of marriage, I, I, I see certain things and, and I love my wife and I do what I can to please her, but I guarantee you, if you talk to people who've been married for 60 years and you say like, hey, do you, do you think the same way you did when you were married day one? Like that, that's a dumb question. You see, I hope within 50 years of marriage that I finish my wife's sentences, that I know everything about her. I know all of her preferences. I, I know everything... You know, there just becomes like this such union that it's just so intimate. And guys, listen, when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you turn your eyes away from yourself, when you rest in Jesus' righteousness for you, listen, it is a reality. You are a son and daughter of the Most High King, that you are hidden in Christ, that Christ is in you. But let me tell you something. That reality grows. And so the second imagery is this. I don't have any sons, so I'll use my nephew as an example. But someone just gave me a bunch of golf shirts. 
I was very grateful for it. But imagine if I gave my nephew, who's two or three or something like that, if I gave him my clothes, right? Just say right now, the pants I'm wearing and the shirt and the hat, and I put them on this little two-year-old. How, like, the, the pants would, like, like, eat him up. Like, like he would just, you couldn't even see the kid. Like, it would be, like, he, so clumsy and so baggy that it would just feel uncomfortable and awkward. But then imagine five years go by, and Noah is now eight. The clothes are still going to look big. They're going to be baggy, but, but they're, they're going to be better. Maybe he can get all the pants on, but they're still kind of really baggy, and the shirt goes down to his knees. But, but he, he, you can kind of still you can actually see someone standing in it. And then let's do 10 years later. He's 15. Still really baggy, but it looks a little bit more normal. It just looks like he got all of his clothes at the Goodwill or something. But fast forward 10 more years, and he's 25. And you see him in these clothes, and it fits, and it looks normal. See, our union with Christ is not an abstract idea. It is a powerful reality that we grow into, that we learn more and more of what it means to be in Christ, and that Christ is in us. It is a mystical but yet spiritual union that God himself dwells inside of us by his spirit, and he is transforming us, and he is rehumanizing us to be in his image. We need to reclaim our imaginations of what does it mean to be a Christian. You guys listen. So many of us, we try to strive in our own efforts to be a good Christian. Some of us, we don't even think about Christ at all. And what we really need is to reclaim our imagination of who we are in Christ and grow into this reality that you are in Christ, that there is nothing we can do to take you away from that status. And you right now, if you are trusting in Christ, you have the Spirit, which means, guys, this, that you are simultaneously, at the very same time, a justified, declared righteous person. You are sanctified, that you are made saintly, that you have a new identity. You are, you are adopted as a son and daughter of the Most High King. And this is all yours by faith, by trusting in Jesus. So what does union with Christ? Is that we are in Christ, that Christ is in us, and that this is a mystical and spiritual union. It, it is something that is hard to understand, but it is a reality we must grow into. I pray and I hope that as we continue to talk about this, this begins to shape issues like identity, issues of discipleship, issues of cheap grace, issues of of how do I continue to actually walk with Christ when I don't feel like it? And my, my challenge and my encouragement to you is that you would take this gospel message and know that it's not just a something we hold on to, but it's someone that we trust in, and that person is Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for... Just this wonderful topic, and we thank you, God, that for your grace and your mercy and your kindness to us, that you have made us aware of such a great mystery, 
that, Lord, through our faith in Christ, we are hidden in him. Jesus, you carry the burden of our life. We don't have to try to hide behind accomplishments or our good looks or the things we own. We don't have to, Lord, find meaning through social media and and other relationships, Lord. We, we don't have to continue to, to, to strive just to be a good person, Lord. We can just rest, knowing, Lord, that right now for those who are in Christ, who are trusting in Jesus for their salvation, that God, right now you see us as perfect. You see us as lovely. That your grace and your mercy are being poured out to us not abstractly, but in the reality of who we are in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for such a great salvation. I pray that every single one of us, Lord, would grow into this reality. That we would have spiritual practices of looking to your word, of praying, of talking to other Christians, of singing spiritual songs. God, that, that these spiritual practices, God, would help us not to achieve, not to earn, but to simply to grow into this reality of who we already are in Christ. Make us better for this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.